Mortimer, episode 25. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Apples, apples, I like stories. Oh, I do like my apples, Eugene. Oh, I hope you enjoy Mortimer's podcast as well. We should slit their throats to steal the vessel, insisted Robert's first mate. He stood by Robert's side as the crew readied the dinghy to take them to the Esquire. He be worth more alive than dad, Robert said as fiercely as if he were damning a man, yet low, so that no one outside their group could hear. He stood back and watched as several of his largest men heaved Captain Mortimer into the smaller boat. The crew wants blood. Tell him this tobacco will make him richer than Lucifer himself. Aye? The first mate looked hopeful. Then why do ye go aboard? Make the deal on the sanctum. Captain Roberts sneered at his first mate. Ye question me again and I'll kill ye myself. Yes, sir. Now, help me into this boat. The pirate went to the rail to assist his captain. Shall she hold? The first mate nodded toward Mortimer, whose mass was causing the boat to pull down violently on the ropes tied to the larger ship. Shut up and get out of me way! The captain climbed into the dinghy, joining two of his other crew members and Mortimer. A pistol was pointed at Mortimer's belly as the men began to crank the wheel and lower the boat into the water. Don't he be getting any ideas of escaping, sneered the one holding the pistol. Mortimer sniffed once and looked away as the boat wobbled and creaked in its descent. Several moments later, it landed in the water with a splash. The hooks were released, and the two crewmen began to paddle. "'You're a lucky bastard to have such a fine harvest,' observed the captain as they moved toward the Esquire. Mortimer thought quite the contrary. It absolutely befuddled him how recent events had transpired. Perhaps the captain had not smoked enough. It was absolutely inconceivable for him to be alive, let alone interested in something Mortimer's uncle had produced. As far as Mortimer could tell, the only good thing that had come from Jebediah Binkley was the silence that remained in his domicile every time Jebediah and the Binkleys departed back to the dilapidated yokel community that they called home. The boat bumped into the side of the Esquire and they were assisted up onto the deck. Killigrew stepped out from the crowd and nodded subserviently to Mortimer, puzzling him. Captain, he gestured. Captain Clark awaits he. Ridiculous, Mortimer spat out, for he'd been aboard the Esquire for a number of days without encountering any Captain Clark. Are ye not the captain? the pirate asked with malice. Clark be the captain in absence of Captain Mortimer. Killigrew clarified. The learning of Mortimer's identity had changed everything aboard the Esquire. 
While Captain Clark had been assigned the role of captain, Mortimer Iscariot was the captain by birthright. This fact made Kilgrew uneasy, given all that he'd seen of Mortimer since he came aboard, but there was no denying Mortimer's right, naturally seaworthy or not. He led them across the deck while Cowlick and Sid stood to the side, watching in a confused awe. The gleaming floors, spotless sails, ebony rails and delicate attention to detail calmed Mortimer as he followed the pirate captain and Kilgrew. He felt her mistress groan beneath his feet, vibrating them pleasantly as she welcomed him back aboard her ample deck. They stopped outside Captain Clark's quarters and knocked twice. "'Come in,' came a voice from inside. At the invitation, Kilgrew opened the doors. Mortimer was horrified by what he saw inside. "'It's you!' The ancient man was not wearing the soot-grey trench coat from before, but Mortimer knew that face. The captain looked up from his paperwork. "'Do come in.' "'You had me arrested, you fascinorous, nutty-pated cousiner!' "'Well, you kicked me over in the park.' The captain lifted his ivory cane and shook it at Mortimer. "'You did not come out to save her mistress?' "'Well, you boarded this ship as a castaway, "'and you are clearly not one of my crew.' Captain Robert eyed the two surreptitiously. Kilgrew cleared his throat. <clears throat> Ye captain of the devil's sanctum is here too. My name is Captain Clark. Mortimer's nemesis gestured to the two chairs opposite him. Have a seat and let us come to an agreement. The day was sunny and bright and the temperature was perfect, as was every day on the island. All the riches and treasures in the world were within his grasp. He possessed chests full of twinkling diamonds and priceless artifacts from the far reaches of the globe. His collection room was filled with dishes and blown glass from the richest lands in the Atlantic. Gems stolen from wealthy voyagers overflowed from wooden boxes, and tapestries and textiles threaded with gold and lace hung in long exotic panels from the vaulted ceilings down to the marble floors. Furniture carved from cherry wood, as well as exotic potted plants, filled its cavernous rooms. Statues, fountains, and mirrors widened the eyes of his many foreign bankers, while jewels glistened from his ring-covered fingers. Wherever he roamed, he was regarded as king. He was admired, revered, and worshipped. His wealth bought him everything that he wanted. Well, almost everything. The afternoon dragged on as he sat in his favourite room overlooking the beach. A golden crown wrapped about his balding scalp and trees and flowers swayed gently in the balmy sea air. The finest human specimens the island had to offer visited him continuously. Yet he was not content. As he reclined lazily between visitors, the beautiful women who stood at his sides waved palm branches. Another knelt beside his lounging chair and fed him freshly picked fruit. Master Rotager, what else do you desire? Her voice was low, and her luminous ebony locks hung down around a statuesque feminine frame. Javier Ortager was the name he had chosen. It sounded powerful and rich, just right for the life he planned for himself. He chewed on a berry slowly and groaned as he repositioned his ample buttock. The irony of my position as your leader is that it renders satisfaction consistently out of my grasp. Yes, Your Excellence. The condition of my psychological well-being has 
only been slightly ameliorated by the constant overtures that oh, I receive from you, my dear. Her expression did not betray her incertitude, but Harvia was astute at reading people, and he knew that she was a dullard. Your Grace, the tenor voice rang in sharp contrast to Harvia's own baritone timbre. He ran quickly, his sandal feet echoing across the white marble floors and into the open garden, where Javier often spent his afternoons. What is it? Javier opened his mouth for another bite of fruit. I have important news. His servant displayed a letter. Javier waved his hand dismissively. Then get on with it. Sir, if I may. <clears throat> the man cleared his throat. Y you might prefer to read it yourself. Narrowing his eyes at the manservant, Javier lifted his right hand and snapped his fingers. The women around him stopped waving their branches and set them on the ground. Would you like me to leave, Your Grace? Javier looked up at the doe-eyed woman beside him. Yes, Magner, I'll summon you back after we've finished our conversation. Yes, Master. She bowed and hurried to follow the rest of the women. Now what is it that has you interrupting me in the middle of my disentanglement from totalitarianism? Javier complained once they were alone. His companion looked confused. Sir? Oh, just get on with it. Javier rolled his eyes and shifted his rounded frame in order to face the nervous valet. It's a telegram from Robert. This got his attention. Give me that. He snatched the paper from the man's hand. He read the correspondence silently. Javier, stop. Esquire of Centennial Shipping Line found on Atlantic outside South Carolina. Stop. Trade negotiated. Stop. Likely yield to eclipse previous pillage by tenfold. Stop. Captain commandeered goes by the name Mortimer Ascariot. Stop. Javier looked up from the letter, his eyes brimming with tears. My God, he murmured. Sir, are you all right? Javier was silent for a moment. His heart swelled, causing his chest to ache. He looked up at the baffled expression on his manservant's face. Ready my ship! He sat up and pointed his finger decisively into the air. Which ship, sir? Javier took the crown off his head and threw it through a large open window facing the sea. Sir, your crown! My fastest ship of the fleet! Javier was scrambling toward his quarters, his servant not far behind him. He felt twenty years younger. No, thirty. There was a kick in his step and he wanted to shout for joy. Shall I respond to the telegram? The voice was breathless and urgent. Javier stopped and whirled around. A crazed expression crossed his features. Yes, my dear fellow. Tell him. He paused, his eyes flashing mischievously. Tell him Gerard has come back from the dead. Milly? You've received a note from your mother. Mrs. Dixon entered the kitchen, carrying a stack of mail. A sign of relief excited Mrs. Dixon, as she noted the absence of any threatening letters. It would seem that the last instalment withdrawn by the barrister shortly after the night of the party had satisfied the criminal, at least for the time being. Oh! Millie jumped up from the table where she'd been eating breakfast. Do tell me, Millie, how, how are your parents? Mrs. Peabody looked up from her washing. She made a grand attempt at acting cheery, but inside she was feeling dreadfully worried. For the evening before, they discovered that, contrary to what they'd assumed, Mortimer was not, in fact, aboard the Longhorn cruise to Africa. This left them back at square one, wondering where their dear master was and if he was unharmed. 
The Longhorns had received Mrs. Dixon's declaration with mixed equanimity. Mr. Longhorn had turned several shades of red while his wife had passed out. After the smelling salts had assisted Mrs. Longhorn in regaining consciousness, Mr. Longhorn had taken her swiftly back home and he himself had driven down to the shipping yard. He dug through the poorly filed papers and confirmed that a Mortimer Ascariot had boarded the Africa-bound ship with a ticket purchased by John Ascariot. Another individual who went by the name Sam Smith had accompanied him. Sam's ticket had been purchased that morning with cash, and the boy at the dock hadn't bothered to ask for identification. Mr. Longhorn, an astute businessman, became immediately suspicious and drove straight to the boy's home. He woke the family up in the middle of the night, and after several minutes of pressured interrogation, the boy conceded that he'd been paid a decent sum of money to let the two aboard without further question. Longhorn had sent his man to the Iscariot household with the news, and also to inform the Binkleys that he was working to get in touch with the ship so as to order it to about-face immediately and return the runaways to Georgetown. Neville, several letters have come for you as well. What about the paper? Neville accepted the letters and the newspaper that Mrs. Dixon handed him. She carried the rest of the stack to the table and joined Millie Neville and Mr. Peabody. Uh, "'Mother and father wrote from Paris,' Millie's eyes scanned the page. "'She's taking a cooking class. Uh, "'Father's been away in the country on business.' "'Oh, I should like to take a French cooking class,' "'Mrs. Peabody continued washing dishes. "'Oh, dear,' Mrs. Dixon sighed from her seat at the table. "'What is it?' "'Mr. Wolfenstein will be here any day, "'and we still have no clue where Martimer has gone. "'Whatever will become of the company?' She brushed an errant tear from her eye. And what has happened to our Mortimer? Do you suppose that he could have gotten onto the wrong ship? Mrs. Peabody wondered. Before Mrs. Dixon could reply, Jeb and Bobby Sue entered the kitchen. Jeb went straight for the stove and leaned his dirty face down to inhale the scent of eggs. Well, that be a smelling mighty fine, Mrs. P. Millie had turned a deep shade of red upon noticing Jeb and Bobby Sue enter. Lowering her letter, she focused on her morning cup of tea. "'Do get you a snout out of the pan, Jebediah!' Mrs. Dixon gathered up the remaining mail and stuffed it into her apron. "'Billy, please fix Mr. Binkley a plate.' "'Yes, ma'am.' With rosy cheeks and a sleepy smile, Mrs. Binkley helped herself to a chair next to Neville. "'I must say that, oh, it's a relief that our boys are float to Africa. "'I ain't slept so good since we got here.' Mary handed the plate to Jeb without meeting his eyes. Would you like some breakfast, Mrs. Binkley? Oh, do call me Baba Sue. And yes, yes, thank you, Millie. As Millie made her a plate, Jeb joined Bobby Sue at the table. Boy, oh boy, it's been a treat not a making breakfast for a change. If I could have had my way, why, we'd never leave. Neville choked on his coffee. Glad to see you in such good spirits this morning. Mrs. Dixon kicked Neville beneath the table. Well, it was such a relief to know Percy wasn't lost after all. Bobby Sue accepted the plate from Millie, who, in an effort to increase the space between herself and the Binkleys, grabbed a towel and began to scrub the countertops. I do think I shall have some coffee, if you don't mind finishing up. Mrs. Peabody deposited her towel into a nearby hamper. Jeb's face was level with his plate. He'd already shoveled the majority of the content into his mouth. That boy, he'd be a prize bull. What? 
Neville's black-rimmed lorgnettes were pushed down on his nose as he looked up from his letter. Mr. Peabody slid his chair over as his wife joined them at the table, a cup of coffee in hand. "'Found herself a lady with pedigree!' Jeb shoveled the last of the eggs into his mouth. He dragged an arm across his greasy face and grinned over at his wife, who was eating as though she had just run a marathon. "'I'd say it was his balls that attracted her.' Coffee shot out of Mrs. Peabody's mouth and across the table, splattering onto Neville. Bobby Sue leapt up. "'Oh, Mrs. Peabody, are you joking? That was completely unnecessary!' Neville pulled a spotless handkerchief from his pocket and went to work, dabbing at his face and cleaning his spectacles. "'Here you go!' Mr. Peabody handed Neville his own kerchief. "'I'd say that kind of conversation should remain in the cigar room, old chap.' "'But why?' Bobby Sue was genuinely confused. He's right. Our Percy has unusually large balls. Bobby Sue, may I get you another plate of food? Mrs. Dixon interjected loudly. Bobby Sue tilted her head as her mind changed trajectories. Oh, no, thank you. I'm stuffed. Mrs. Dixon noticed that Millie had disappeared from the kitchen. She knew that after the hog-calling incident, the young housemaid had been uneasy around the Binkleys. All the better, Mrs. Dixon determined. As it was, she was going to need several weeks to undo the trauma the young girl had endured at the hand of the Binkley's uncensored behaviour. It was a phenomenon that amazed me, even when he was a babe. Why, we even took him to the old dock in town. He was surprised, but said it was likely inherited. She gave Jeb a knowing look. Aye, he's his father's son, Jeb announced with pride. Mr. Binkley, please! Mrs. Dixon could not tolerate the subject any longer. Well, I knows for a fact that ladies are looking for certain qualities in a fella. Jeb pressed on. He's a prime specimen. Your son is not cattle. He got the lady, didn't he? Jeb crossed his arms with satisfaction. Can't argue that. Jeb, baby, didn't you say you was going to look for some fertilizer while we was here? Oh, that's right, Jeb nodded. With all the nonsense going on, I'd completely forgot. <laughs> hey, Neville, y'all got any fairgrounds round here? Neville gazed drolly across the table. Excuse me? Shouldn't you be looking at farms instead of fairgrounds? Mr. Peabody wanted to know. Jeb's face twisted into a strange expression. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I was just wanting to get to know the area, that's all. Neville put his letter back into its envelope and prepared to stand up. But before he could escape, Mrs. Dixon chimed in. Neville, why don't you take the Binkleys here on a little trip around town? They've been in Georgetown for some time now, and it's terribly impolite that we've not given them a proper tour. Why, that's a grand proposal, Mrs. Dixon. Mrs. Binkley jumped up. I'll get my boots. Neville felt a sinking in his stomach. What do you need boots for? Oh, Jeb here loves trekking through feces. He's got to get up close in order to find the perfect kind. Trekking through... Mrs. Dixon handed Neville the keys, ignoring the expression on his face. Take as long as you'd like you to. Neville is at your disposal. Well, that's wonderful. Mrs. Binkley clapped her hands together. What do you say, Jeb? I say yee-haw! Jeb punched the air with his fist. I gotta change into my bibs for a wee skedaddle. Fantastic. Great. Mrs. Dixon nodded, ignoring the menacing look Neville was giving her. Anything else I can get you before you go? Oh, yes, am That is one thing. Neville was 100% certain that he did not want to know Jeb's answer. 
but he asked anyway. What's that? Y'all got any buckets? I'm proud of you, young man. Orange resisted the urge to drop his jaw at the sergeant's words. Next to him, Carter reclined, one leg draped over a knee. The superintendent opened a file. I have no idea how you figured out the Albright's involvement, but there it is. Brilliant work, son. I have a confession on file from Mr. Albright, added Carter. He gave details of the entire thing. Turns out that the couple had been involved in money laundering, theft, and, by proxy, several accounts of murder. Do you know if he had any true intention of offing Orange? The glint of the blade in the darkness, the crazed look in the man's eyes. Orange felt a skip in his pulse at the memory. He denies it. Claims that he was desperate and not thinking clearly that night. The sergeant focused his attention on Orange. What about the lady? What do you got for me? Does that mean I'm back on the force? I haven't said that, came the gruff reply. Why did she tell you? Orange swallowed. While he was glad to be alive and back in the sergeant's good graces, it would still help to have a job. Why, he'd risked his life for the good of the police force and to protect the people of Georgetown. The least they could do was to give him another chance. She said that she met Miss Hornwasher three years ago, that at the time Miss Hornwasher was seeing Mr. Iscariot in secret. Fits the profile we have on her, Carter confirmed. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Iscariot was upset with his son, often complaining that he was worthless and that at his retirement the company would fall into his son's hands and everything would go to shambles. Those rich aristocrat types are such monsters. Shut it, Carter. The sergeant looked back to Orange. Go on. He came up with a plan on how to secure his fortune, make more money in the process and get away from his son. He devised the plan with the Albrights, Miss Hornwasher and her brother. Who's her brother? The sergeant leaned forward with interest. Get a name? No, I don't know, Orange's cheeks pinked. She wouldn't tell me his name. Carter, I'll need you to go clean up the missing details with her. This fella here isn't the most skilled interrogator. Hey, Orange said half-heartedly. But really, the sergeant was right. He wasn't the great interrogator. He sighed, his shoulders slumping. What else did she tell you? She said that herself and her husband, Charles Albright, had been poverty-stricken and they agreed to this plan out of desperation. Mr. Scariot paid them a hefty sum of money up front to coordinate the financial transfers. Seeing as Mr. Albright was Mr. Scariot's barrister, it was very easy. His barrister? The sergeant murmured while scanning his notes. That's right, that's right. And after Mr. Scariot left the continent, Miss Hornwasher was arrested. She came back to Georgetown some indiscriminate amount of time later and stayed with them. Mrs. Albright used her popular status to introduce Miss Hornwasher back into society under a new identity. They changed her appearance, and the people of Georgetown, well, they didn't know the difference. Where was Mrs. Albright headed on the night she was arrested? Orange shrugged. She wouldn't tell me that either. As you know, she was apprehended at the harbour, and for what it's worth, the Mockingham ship is missing, Carter interjected. Do we have a description? Carter nodded. Yeah, I took a full report this morning. Fine. The sergeant looked up from one officer to the other. The next item on the agenda is to find Gerard Iscariot. Orange. Yes, sir? The young man perked up. Do you play a musical instrument? He sighed. Mm, trumpet, sir. Fine, fine. The officer slammed his fist into the desk. At the festival tomorrow, I want you up on that stage with the band. The mayor will be making announcements. When you open your mouth, you're an idiot, but you do have a keen sense of observation. 
I want you front and centre. If you see anything suspicious, you're to notify Carter here immediately. Uh, where will I be, sir? First, I want you to interview Mrs. Albright, and then tomorrow you're on patrol. What are we looking for? The sergeant narrowed his grey eyebrows. Just like a ripple in water can eventually result in waves. With all of these recent developments, Gerard Scarrett is going to come out of hiding. Sir? With his barrister behind bars, the flow of money is going to stop. My guess is that sooner than later, we'll be seeing Mr. Iscariot here in Georgetown. And we're going to be ready for him. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.